Melissa, and as always, I am so glad you are joining the Behind the Defense podcast today. As you may have noticed, I'm hosting solo, but that will not stop you from hearing about some amazing new research. Today, we are joined by a fellow monarch, Dr. Todd Simino-Johnson, who recently completed his doctoral research entitled Narratives from Appalachia, the Current Stories of LGBT Community College Students. Todd earned a Doctorate of Philosophy degree in Community College Leadership from Old Dominion University and is a recent May 2021 graduate. So join us as we not only discuss his research into the LGBT Community College student experience, but also identify new ways to incorporate Marvel terms into our everyday life. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Simino Johnson. Could you start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Well, hello, everyone. My name is Todd Simino-Johnson, and I am a, I guess in my career, I am a program coordinator of business and economics at Blue Ridge CTC in Martinsburg, West Virginia. I've been doing that job now for five years. Prior to that, I was a corporate accountant, so I wasn't even in higher education, which is a little different pathway. I started at Old Dominion University in 20, I think it was 2018, January of 2018. Uh, I took one class prior to getting into the program just to see how I was going to like it. I had already applied and I believe I was already accepted, but I wanted to get a class in just to see what it was like. And I took it and um, I was like, yeah, this is a pretty cool program. I like the individuals interacted with. So I went to Summer Institute that year and really enjoyed the process. You know, it was a two week on campus intensive 10 days, which sounds terrible for somebody who works full time and has a family and doesn't want to be away from that family. But that cohort style, that cohort mentality coming together for 10 days changed, I think, everything about the process. Um, So I fully advocate getting immersed in that process and yes it's 10 days and yes you're going to be away from your your, everything you know and yes you'll probably sleep on a college campus and for me I never had so that was my first time in a dorm room and it was uncomfortable it was weird it smelled weird it was odd (laughs) the bathroom situation everything was odd about it being you know 40 years old and for the first time living in a dorm. And I was like, oh, thank goodness I didn't do this when I was 20. (laughs) But that's me in a nutshell, I guess. That's great. And I um, can second the looking at the Summer Institute schedule and being like, how is this going to happen? And what is this going to be like? And it does turn out to be one of the most rewarding experiences I think you have in the program, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us, how did you choose the topic of your dissertation? So it's a really crazy, not crazy story, but it's 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 not the topic I came up with at first. First year on campus, that summer institute, I believe it was the second week, the research methods class, and I'm sitting there with someone I actually work with who went to summer institute with me and is a part of the program, and she actually also graduated uh, same time I'm going to graduate this year, Miss Page, Doctor Page Moore. And I had something totally, uh, I don't even remember what it was. It may have been dual enrollment or international students at community colleges, something I didn't know anything about. I'm like, I just don't feel connected to this topic. And she looks over at me and she says, well, why don't you do something about LGBTQ students? 
And I was like, light bulb went off. I was like, why am I not doing that? That's who I am. That's my identity. You know, I'm LGBTQ and I just started a uh, LGBTQ group on our college campus that we both work at. And I was like, that is a perfect topic for me. And at that moment, it just clicked. It just, I just went forward with that topic. Okay, it has to be around community college, LGBTQ. Now, what exactly, how am I going to pair those together? And what is that going to look like? So it eventually came down to taking in the fall, I took a qualitative research class and I really enjoyed the qualitative research. For me, storytelling, getting that deep information is everything I want. I like quantitative data to look at and to read. That's great. But if this is going to be my dissertation, it's got to be qualitative. It can't be quantitative for me. It's just that that never made sense to me. So I'm also a history buff and I like history. I teach, I have two master's degrees and I didn't mention this earlier, but I have a master's in history and a master's in business administration. And I received the master's in history later after I got into higher education. But I also teach Appalachian and West Virginia history at my community college in addition to business classes and economics classes. And it just made sense to, for me, I wanted to look at Appalachia. All of this just started coming together slowly, bit by bit. And I was like, okay, this this is the topic. This is where I'm going with this. I want to know about what is the campus like for community college students, LGBTQ community college students right now? What are they experiencing? I know what my students on my campus experience, but what about the 12 other states in Appalachia? Because there's 13 total states. So... That's how I ended up getting to this topic, which my topic is narratives from Appalachia, the current stories of LGBTQ community college students. Great. And I did not realize how big Appalachia actually is until I was looking through. I I think I remember seeing your Facebook ad post it. Oh, okay. And so I remember being like, oh, wow. And then when I was reading your dissertation and I got to the, you had the map in there and Mm -hmm. I looked at it and I was, I just was blown away. I never, and I'm from Pennsylvania and I didn't realize that three quarters of Pennsylvania is in Appalachia. Cause you think, I think when you think of it, like stereotypically, you're thinking of like West Virginia, Kentucky, like that really Southern right on the cusp of hitting Midwest area. So it, it is such a wide ranging area that I, I initially one could read your title and be like, oh, this is such a niche, but it actually is a huge chunk of the, our student population. Why don't you tell us a little bit about why this topic is important to the field of higher education? Sure. So why is this topic important to the field of higher education? There are a lot of community colleges across the United States, and I would probably put money down somewhere with someone that every community college has at least one LGBTQ student on their campus. And it's probably more than one, but I would definitely bet $100 it's one. If they're not, even if they're not out, they're there. So this topic touches every single community college in the United States, and it's not unique to Appalachia. Going through the the literature review, realizing that what students in Appalachia experienced isn't unique to Appalachia. Some of it may be. I think a lot with what I talk about 
religion in there may be more so from an Appalachian standpoint, as opposed to maybe the whole of the United States. Individuals who are running community colleges, who work on community colleges, they need to understand more about what those needs are for LGBTQ students. They're different. They're different than BIPOC students. They're different than just about any other group of individuals you want to put in there. They have different needs. And I, I put together, hopefully, a good set of recommendations of what practitioners and leaders of community colleges can do to help these students, to make them feel included. Because as of right now, a lot of the students don't feel included. They feel safe on that campus than they do other places, but they also don't feel included. A lot of the students I spoke to talked about well, I've never seen a pride flag. I've never seen LGBTQ mentioned. We don't have a club. We don't have an organization on campus that represents me. Some of them even would tell me, you know, if they did see something mentioned, even if it was one time, it like they lit up like, oh, wow, they mentioned LGBTQ. There's a scholarship for us. That's pretty cool. Even if nothing else is mentioned on their campus. That feeling of inclusion helps students stay in your community college. And speaking from a personal standpoint, I've had many transgender students come into the business program at where I work. I haven't seen one stay. Like, I mean, stay on the campus at all. They just don't. And I've tried from a personal standpoint to make the campus more inclusive and I don't know if that's it or if there's something else that they just don't feel comfortable on the campus. I've never been able to reach back out and get a response to, hey, how can I help you? How can I help you get through the community college? How can I help you get this degree? So I've never, I never received a response from reaching out later. So it's very important if we want to talk about retention on community colleges to look at all different facets of students, you know, veterans and adults and disabled. But for me, the LGBTQ student is personal because I'm LGBTQ and I identify with them. And I want to be in a space that people I know are accepting and that I feel included. When I interviewed for the job that I currently have, a business program coordinator, I made sure to mention that I was gay. Because I felt I never wanted that to be an impediment to anything. So if they would hire me after I mentioned I was gay, or they I mentioned I was gay and they hired me, I should say it that way, then I knew it would be a safe space for me. I knew I'd be included. I feel very strongly about the topic and about why this is so important for higher ed leaders to really... I know they're not going to read my dissertation, but at least read the recommendations and start to put those into practice. And I think one thing when I was going through, it's jumping a little bit to findings, but you had talked about going through digital content about the institution. When I think we think of like all the different resources you could have on a college campus, you didn't find that type of language. You didn't find those resources for students. There wasn't inclusivity statements. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe your reaction to seeing that? Yeah, absolutely. So this was probably the most shocking part 
of this whole process. And it happened. So I looked a little bit at first before I interviewed the student to see what I could find, to see if it mirrored what they were saying. And then I went back afterwards and I looked even deeper to see, because I know I looked for clubs and organizations first. I looked for equality. I looked for equity. I looked for LGBTQ. Didn't find very much at all. I can't remember how many schools now. I had 15 students and I can't remember how many community colleges that represent it. Say it was 13. I don't remember very much coming up during either search, either way, where I would go, oh, okay, cool. They have a club and organization for these students. It would be, am I doing something wrong? Am I am I at the right college? <laughs> that's that's where I was in this in this research. I'm like, am I in the right place? Maybe I need to come back tomorrow and look. This today is just isn't good. So I would go and I'd download the um, student handbook and I would look through the state, I'd do a search through the student handbook. Nothing came up. I'd be like, okay, let me just do a general search on their website, do a general search. No, okay, well, maybe it's just not pulling. I mean, I just gave myself excuse after excuse after excuse of why I'm not finding anything. So I would go through all these different iterations of, okay, let me, let me try to trick the system. Let me look at each web page. And no, there just wasn't anything there. I think I remember one school that was in a larger area. They did have something. They had uh, an on-campus club. And the person I spoke with said, well, it's not really um, active. I mean, they kind of come and go. It's a community college. You know, students are there in only two years, sometimes less. And you just can't keep, and I have the same issue at my school. You can't keep students engaged for two years. You know, that's why it's very different than the four-year schools where you have more of a captive audience. People are living on campus and they want something to do. They want an outlet. And this is how they come together. And they kind of form this little cohort of LGBTQ students. And they do much better at that than the two years do. But I did go through every website of all 81 community colleges in Appalachia. And I looked for, <laughs> I looked for how many organizations and clubs were on campus. And I want to say out of the 81, there were... Now I can't remember off the top of my head, but I do have that information because I was very curious as I kept digging. And this was before I knew who I was going to interview because I wanted to have that information in front of me so I could say, oh, well, I found this on your website. Is that true? And a couple of them I'd found on the website and they would say, no, we don't. That hasn't been around in five years or 10 years. It might still be listed, but it's not an active club. So then I'd put that note in my Excel spreadsheet that, oh, okay this club isn't really active. And I think there was one, if I remember correctly, where it wasn't listed on the website, but they said they did have an active club. So the community colleges aren't doing a great job also of putting the information on their website. That was just one instance. And I just wonder how many more I found with no clubs listed that actually had them. And at one point I was emailing if I could find the person who was in charge of clubs and organizations campus, I would email them and ask them, hey, do you have an L- I'm doing research. My name is this. I'm at Old Dominion University. Can you tell me? I don't see any club listed, but do you have one that's active that just it isn't listed? And they would come back. Some of them say, no, there isn't a club on campus. 
So they would verify that information for me. It's interesting you talk about the difference in a four-year institution versus a two-year community college. And and really, it kind of puts the onus on the institution to create that space, where at four-year institutions, you could say the students are creating this space for themselves. We have a student-led organization policy, but really it, it puts the onus back on. And I was shocked that I think we talk in higher ed a lot about like inclusivity, but the fact that there wasn't an inclusivity statement at the at a majority of the institutions just was kind of shocking. And I think with the community college, they're focused, they're so focused on workforce development and getting people into the workforce quickly that things like inclusivity, LGBTQ clubs and organizations just fall by the wayside because that's they're so focused on other things that that's not at the forefront that i think that's one of the challenges that you hear with workforce development is that you sacrifice the human element of the education by just kind of focusing on the end result yeah so you you did a narrative inquiry how did you settle on that as your methodology so i'd have to go back to Again, the research class, when I went through the research methods class, and then the qualitative class, the dissertation was always on my mind. Like, what am I going to do for my dissertation? So I was always looking, like, would this fit? Would that fit? So I narrowed down to narrative inquiry and maybe phenomenology and a case study. And the more research I read from my lit review, I realized Everybody does phenomenologies. Everybody's doing case studies. There's no narrative inquiries out here. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to go with this, if I'm going to do this, I want to do something that other people aren't doing. I want to look at it from a different standpoint. And I think I made a really good decision in that because otherwise there would have been another case study. Not that that's a bad thing. Case studies are necessary, you know, (laughs) phenomenologies, they're necessary, but I just wanted to do something a little bit different than what I saw out there in the lit review. So that was a good, good thing doing the lit review early. I knew what was already out there and I knew what was missing. When you're processing and planning that methodology, what were some of the challenges you faced? The biggest challenge for me, I think, was coming up with... um, When I conducted the research with the students, the biggest challenge was, because narrative inquiry is stories, so you're telling these stories, students finding stories to tell. And they would, some of them would hem and haw and go, I really don't have any story. I read what you sent me, but I really don't have any stories to tell you. I said, well, let's go through these questions and hopefully stories come out. And as we went through the questions, stories came out. (laughs) It was... It was a little bit challenging, and I think it was a little bit intimidating for some of the students because they're thinking, I thought, the way I understood it from how they reacted, they were thinking they had this hour-long story to tell about all these LGBTQ issues happening on campus, and that's not really what I was looking for. I was looking for anything they had, and they had it. They all, all had it. All 15 individuals I interviewed had at least one story and they had multiple stories. Um, It's just, you have to be able to ask questions and probe deeper and deeper and deeper. 
And it would be these little light bulb moments that went off with them. Oh, wait, wait. I remember this one story and I forgot about it because it was three years ago because some of the individuals, you know, it takes longer than two years to go through community college campus if they're working full time and going to school part time, which a lot of these students were. And they would remember something. It would just pop out of nowhere. It was a question related to something I asked earlier on, but I just tried to keep them engaged and keep asking those questions. So going through the questionnaire that I brought, I had to make sure that I asked enough questions that I was looking at stories from all different angles. You know, tell me about this. Tell me about that. Have you ever heard about bullying or discrimination, even if it wasn't you? And I had to think through that process and get those questions down right. Because if not, they would have never thought of anything, possibly. Hey, tell me about any issues on the campus with LGBTQ. If that would have been my only question, they would have been like, I, I don't have anything. Okay, thank you for the interview. This has been great. I'll talk to you later. It would have been short and I would have had no research. So I think I ended up with 15 questions, if I remember off the, off the top of my head, that I ended up asking the students. And a lot of questions would, we'd kind of, I'd ask questions off of what they were telling me. Oh, so so yeah, you, you've heard about this. Now tell me more about this student and and tell me how you know that student. So you had to start probing and going deeper into what they were actually telling you, which is, which was, I, I felt a little bit like a journalist because I was looking for more information. Hey, tell me more about this. Tell me more about that. So it was a great experience overall though. With the topics that you were interviewing on and the nature of your study, how did you build rapport with your participants so that they felt comfortable sharing these very sensitive stories with you? I think being a gay cisgender male and saying that to them in my email to them and on um, any, any correspondence I had out there with them at first, um, I think that really, really helped because otherwise I don't know if they would have felt as comfortable talking to me, talking to a straight, straight male that doesn't understand what it's like to be gay or bisexual or doesn't understand what it's like to, to face discrimination or possible discrimination or harassment. So identifying with them, I think, made the process easier. Some individuals were still a little reluctant, I could tell at first, which brings me to the next point would be to start asking very simple questions. So I started with things like, um, you know, what is your name and where do you go to school? Have you ever, have you ever attended another community college? Do you happen to know your GPA? Just a guess, like a ballpark. What I would call leading questions where it would get them a little more comfortable in the seat. Cause these are things they know, you know, it, it's the back of their hand. They're going to know the answer to these and kind of get them to calm down. And also uh, each interview, I, Again, reiterate it. Hey, I'm a cisgender gay male. I work at a community college. I run an LGBTQ club. And, you know, I'm not going to expose your name, where you're where you go to school. Everything's gonna have a pseudonym. And actually what we what I ended up doing, and one of my committee members came up with this idea during my proposal defense was composite narratives which blew my mind. I had to go look this up because I had no idea what she was talking about because <laughs> I had never heard about it. 
And then the other thing, once I figured out what it was, I fell in love with it. I was like, oh my goodness, I get to create a person. Like, yes, I'm taking all this information, but I'm going to take these three people and they're going to be person A. I'm going to take these four people and they're going to be person B. I'm going to take these five people and they're going to be person C. And I did that based on how similar they were and how similar their stories were, which worked out, somehow worked out for me. I think that also made them comfortable because they would ask about that. Like, what do you mean composite narrative? Like, can you tell me more about that? And I'm going to use pseudonyms. So, you know, your name's never going to be used. And I've already created some names. And so I think that made them more comfortable that they felt at ease to share their information with me. I'm glad you mentioned the composite narrative. I was going to ask you about that because when I was reading it, I was like, so brilliant. And just, I had not heard about it before, but it was, it was such a, an interesting, almost just absolutely like, of course you would do that. Cause that's the, that's the bat, like the biggest step of protecting this person. Cause I think that's the fear is even with a pseudonym changing the name of the institution and, you know, not giving the specifics. It's like, someone's going to read this and know exactly who I am. Yeah. But with that composite, it's like, is this me? Is it someone else? Who knows? I had to stop and think about that when I was reading. I was like, what? <laughs> Which, for our listeners, shows how little I know about qualitative research. <laughs> hey, I'd finished the classes and had no idea. I don't even remember that word ever being thrown around. And I, I had it probably took me a week to fully understand what a composite narrative was. Mm-hmm. Like, I... Am, is this fiction? Am I like writing fiction then? Because this isn't a person I interviewed. Yeah, it's like four, three to five people I interviewed, but it's not the person I interviewed. What do you mean? I had to get it through my head like this is all right to do. Mm-hmm. Not that I was reluctant. I was just, my mind was really blown that first week. And then after, really, once I started the composite narratives, it really made sense to me. Then I was like, okay, I get this. Once I started putting them together, after I had the data and analyzed the data, I was like, okay, now this makes sense. Now I get it. Doing it made sense. In theory, it was like, I have no idea what this is supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really confused. Yeah, I think it just goes to show, like, you take these classes and you you will always be a lifelong learner when it comes to research because you can only learn so much yes. in the however long time you're in your program and you're really just learning to do that one study and then move on from there and build upon that knowledge. That's how I'm going to phrase it so I don't feel like I'm clueless <laughs> yeah, in what yeah. I'm doing. And the um, more you read, the more research you read, the more you realize that Oh, they're doing what kind of study? Wow, mm-hmm. I've never heard of that. That's pretty awesome. Never thought about it. And it's like, oh, yeah. So if, if you're into research, you'll be learning stuff the rest of your life, mm-hmm. for sure. You talked a lot about your identity and how it brought you to the topic. It kind of fuels your passion. How did you bracket your positionality when you were going through your findings to make sure that you weren't impressing upon your experiences with the findings? I had to keep a journal a reflexive journal where during once I started gathering research until I was done analyzing the research, I had to keep a journal of, okay, how, how is this making me feel? Am I putting anything into my writing that is me, my voice and not the student's voice? Because when you write chapter four for narrative inquiry, 
they really want you not to just copy and paste the quotes, but you are taking the words the students said and you're putting it in, not necessarily your words, but you're, you're, you're not directly quoting it. You're just saying, hey, this is what was said and this is how I analyzed it and, and this is what I heard and this is what I saw with the students. So you have to make sure, and I think it's a, it, it slows you down because at that point you really have to, you can't just go and do this writing binge because it's, it, you want to make sure you're not in there, that you're not putting yourself in there in any way, your own words. So it's some writing and then journaling. Okay, how, how does this make me feel? How do I see this? And why am I having an issue around, you know, X, Y, or Z when it comes to analyzing some data? So keeping that journal really kept me, I would say, focused on making sure the student, the student voice was in that chapter four and not Todd's voice. Todd's voice is chapter five, <laughs> of course. But chapter four, definitely the student voice. Also, um, rereading it over and over again to make sure, okay, how, did I analyze this correctly? So in some instances, going back to the um, audio and listening to make sure I heard what was said correctly, make sure it was transcribed correctly. Even though the student went through the transcription themselves to make sure everything was right, I just want to make sure I picked it up right and that it was done right. Moving on to your findings, I think you had six themes, correct? Yes, I had six themes. And I think also had six suggestions. So let's talk about themes. Within that, was there anything that you anticipated finding versus something that you were really shocked to see that as the experience of the students? The one that did not surprise me was microaggressions. So every student experienced microaggressions on campus whether that was directed at them or someone else, they heard a microaggression about LGBTQ students at some point. And I think if I remember correctly, everybody heard more than one. Now, most of the students came back and said, I don't think this was intentional. Like this, this instructor really didn't understand what they were saying. They all had an excuse for the person. I mean, I'm gonna go with that. I can't go into anything else, but I think they, in a lot of these cases, let these individuals off. Now, this isn't in my writing and this isn't, this is just my, my voice coming out now, but they just let these individuals off without saying anything like, oh, wait a minute. You know, you, you can't say tranny. You, know, you can't say that word. Sorry. That's, that's not appropriate. Or oh, the biggest one that really like, drove me crazy was using the wrong name for a transgender individual just drove me crazy because I heard it from multiple participants and I was like oh I can't you know even after the instructor was told a couple times you know my name is now Sally not Sam please call me Sally and this it, the individuals has had to keep telling the person over and over again I remember one of them I asked I said was this person like older or were they younger? Oh no, they were probably in their thirties. Thirties. That's younger than me. Like, are they have, do they have memory loss or do they not care? I mean, I don't, I don't know what the issue was, but they all had an excuse like, well, you know, they're just forgetful. It was an adjunct and they just, they didn't remember. Well, they received an email about it. So they should, 
I, I mean, it's for a straight person, it probably isn't as important and they don't understand. They don't get it. But for a transgender individual, that's the difference between that transgender individual staying on your community campus, community college campus and leaving that. that. Yeah. I think it was Quentin who had shared a story and they had said that they were, it was in remote learning and the professor was going through the, like, I guess the attendance or something mm-hmm. and outed the student by dead naming them. Yes. And then this, the, I think if it was Quentin had private message, the student and had said, you know, I'm so sorry that it happened. And the student was like, I was so shocked because I had emailed them before. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when we talk about to practitioners about how we should put our pronouns with our names and everything so that that's a natural question, but we never talk about like, if this information is being provided to you, you need to use it. Or even the one example of the professor had asked ahead of time, and then yeah. never used it. The dead names and the pronouns. And that was both shocking and not shocking, I think, when I read it. I'm so shocked that this is just this obtusive like refusal to just use someone else's name. Because we do that so willingly for cisgendered individuals. Like, I go in and I'm like, please call me Mel. And they call me Mel. That's fine. But no, like, I, we struggle when it comes to someone's gender identity. There's a court case now that's out of, I want to say Georgia, where the professor refused to use the pronouns Mm. and was, I think there was a disciplinary process that happened and it was found that it violated his academic freedom because they didn't have a pronoun policy. And so I think the one thing that I hope if people read your research is they understand the importance of having a policy where it outlines the steps that students should take or professors should take to get that information beforehand and to use that information and to require that we use that information. Yeah, definitely. One thing I would uh, recommend would be, and unfortunately I've researched this at my institution is to allow the students to go in and, and put their preferred name somewhere in a system. So when the roster spits out, it's there and also their pronouns. And my institution tells me that there's no way they could ever do that. There's not even a way they could do it one time to allow that. So, but having a system that will allow students to go in and change that information, whatever they want it, in case it would change while they're at the community college just isn't available. And I know it's, I know it is available because I spoke to one of these individuals I spoke to had it was at a community college where they could go in and do that anytime they wanted to. They could go in and put, please call me Sally and my pronouns are they, them, and they could go and change that tomorrow if they want it. It would be updated on the roster. So it's out there. It's just community colleges have to find that software and and purchase it, whatever that is. I think we lean on our limitations and blame the structures that we have. Yeah. We don't actually want to try it. So is there anything else that, that surprised you or... Um, so my second theme was, uh, the community college can provide a cultural bubble that really didn't surprise me. I kind of see this every day where the community college is not necessarily a safe space all the time, but students feel safer and then they do, you know, outside in the general public. So going to Home Depot, they won't feel as safe, but they come to the community college campus, they feel a lot safer. The biggest thing that I found in this research was every student talked about religion. 
without me bringing it up. None of my questions had anything to do with religion. They didn't slant towards religion. Never had to ask that question. Every student brought it up. They talked about how religion was currently impacting their life on the college campus. And that had to do with other students who were religious and who brought up their religion. And I don't support you because you're gay or you're lesbian, or I don't, I don't believe in homosexuality. And I'm sorry that you're going to hell and things of that nature or their family. It, it, it was an impact with their family situation and they weren't comfortable being at home or they weren't comfortable being out. Some of them weren't even out to their family. They were only out on campus because that's where they felt safe and they, their parents didn't know. Or there was some huge impediment between them and their family that made the dynamic very confrontational. So they either didn't talk about it any longer, like it didn't exist, or it was just ignored. So that was, yeah, religion was definitely something that halfway through I had to look at my questions and go, Am I asking about religion? Because I heard about religion a lot and I'm not asking anything about it. So it's definitely something that LGBTQ students, and it might be, this is what I would like to know. Is it just Appalachia or is, does, this, does this expand beyond Appalachia? I think it has to do a lot with Appalachia, but I could be totally wrong. And that's just my own um, interpretation of this. And there's not a lot of peer-reviewed literature on it, unfortunately to even go off of. So that's kind of an interesting segue. As we talk about your findings, where do you see your findings going for future research? Is that an area that you think should be looked into? What do you see branching off from this study? So I want to research more of the LGBT community college students. I think definitely religion would have to be something, something has to be looked at from a religious standpoint. You know, how is religion impacting these students before they come to campus or while they're at campus? And it would have to look at a larger area because I want to know based on this study, which only looks at these 13 states, is this also impacted in the Midwest like this? What about California? where probably the rate of people who identify as religious may be a lot lower. So I'm very interested to know how other LGBTQ students, community college students are impacted around the country. So definitely I want to, I would love to open this study up to a larger and broader area to see if that is the case. I would like to keep going, like I said, and look at just different areas of LGBTQ on the community college campus. One thing I was thinking of was um, leadership, like looking at presidents, vice presidents, and seeing if they identify as LGBTQ and how they feel, how they fit in, how, how their campus impacts them. And again, probably a much broader area than Appalachia, just because I wanted a smaller study for this, but I definitely want to know more. And one of the people that... Wren did a study in 2010, and she looked at all schools across the United States. Well, she sent out questionnaires to all students across the United States in both four-year and two-year, and she got a lot of information. I mean, over 5,000 students took her survey. The largest study done of LGBTQ students ever, and I would love to see that replicated either by me or by someone else or by a group of people just to see, because we live in such a different time. 
and I think I said this in my dissertation a couple times, but 2010 and 2021, maybe a little bit later when this would be conducted, it's going to look so different. You know, the, the LGBTQ student at four-year and two-year institutions are in a very different place. You know, marriage equality is law of the land and employment discrimination cannot happen because you're LGBTQ. So how are things different from 2010 to today? I would love to know that, that question. And as I was doing this research, I was thinking somebody needs to replicate her study and do it again. I think you should do that. I think that's, it, it is interesting. I think this is one area of equality where it happened very quickly, mm-hmm. but I think there is a four year period from like 2016 to 2020, where even though there was this push and we can show that people are more understanding and open, but I feel like there was a four year period where there was kind of like a societal setback or empowering of certain views and so I, I always think whenever research is done pre like 2016, I'm always like, maybe we should do this again. <laughs> like we had like a weird, like time difference <laughs> that occurred. <laughs> um, but I, a I do <laughs> a blip. Yeah, it's a blip. <laughs> so Thanos snapped and then we unsnapped it and we're good now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, as that is actually, I'm going to now call that time period, the blip. Um, I'm stealing that from you. I apologize. Chapter five, you had said it's your voice. Really. A lot of it is talking about how we can apply this and really change how institutions of higher ed are kind of operating. Our listeners probably are not going to read your dissertation. This is your moment to share it with them. If you could have a magic wand and go over all of higher education out of your research, what needs to change and how would you like to see it change? Well, if I had a magic wand, I would love to see every community college adopt institutional level supports. And what I mean by that is looking at things like equity, equality, harassment, discrimination, making sure that they have policies in place that make LGBTQ students safe, that include them, that shows that they're valued. Make sure there's something mentioned on a web every website. They should all have a club on campus, a safe space that students can go to and attend. I heard from many students, oh my goodness, I'm so glad this, this club exists because I found people who are like me. I didn't hear that from the students who didn't have any. A lot of times they would just leave campus and go somewhere else because there's no place for them. They don't feel like there's a place for them, um, even though there might be a place for them there. But being with people who are like themselves, being in a space they feel comfortable saying, I'm gay and I like someone of the same sex or I'm transgender and I'm scared and talking to someone. You can't do that with a faculty member that you don't know how they feel about transgender individuals. You just, you're not going to do it. So creating a culture of support, creating a culture of acceptance. I think for most public community colleges, they do accept LGBTQ students, but you've got to say it, you know, it's like your family members, you love them and you may not say you love them, but isn't it better if you tell them you love them all the time? 
you still have to reinforce that on a community college campus, especially in a, in a community college, because those individuals, they don't know, they don't know how leaders and faculty members and instructors, they don't know how they feel. They have no idea. But if they see a sticker or a flag, a rainbow flag or a safe space, or there's an email sent out to, you know, every once in a while, it talks about this club or it talks about pride month, or they know that they're accepted there. So it's very important that at the highest rungs of the institution, that it's made very apparent that LGBTQ students are welcome, they're accepted, and they will, they will not be discriminated against. So some other things I talked about in my findings was offering on-campus safe zone training for all faculty and staff, whether this is mandatory or not mandatory, but there are a lot of cisgender heterosexual individuals that are on community college campuses. I mean, they're the majority. And a lot of people don't understand terminology when it comes to LGBTQ populations. So we need to have these trainings and it can't be one time and done. It has to be an ongoing situation, whether it's virtual, whether it's something they listen to on a website and they take a little quiz, however that looks, however, whatever works for community college campuses, it needs to be there because we are seeing so many microaggressions on campuses just because these individuals don't understand. They don't understand pronoun usage and how important that is for transgender students. So it has to be, it has to be taught just like we teach other subjects. It has to be something that we are constantly doing and this stuff changes. You know, the, the, the word queer was not acceptable 20 years ago. We would not be using that term. Today, we're using the word queer because it encompasses a larger population of people. So this is something that's ongoing. It's changing. Some of it is new to me. You know, I have to look every, one, every once in a while what pansexual is versus what is omnisexual, which is something I just learned doing this dissertation. I had no idea. I was like, I got to look up omnisexual because I have no idea what that means. So it's a constant learning. Constant, constant learning. Offer an LGBTQ club or organization on campus. It's very important for students to have a space that they feel like they can meet other individuals like themselves. They create friendships out of that. It's another way to keep students retained and keep them on campus. The other thing I would offer is uh, one of the, the last one of the last things that I put in this dissertation is offering resources for LGBTQ students, faculty, and staff. So not just students, but you also have to have resources. And I offer at least 60 resources in an appendix to my dissertation, but there are certainly more out there that I don't, I don't even know about. I did ones that are more national focused, but there's also state level things that, that individuals could look into. But having at least a list of resources, okay, here's where you go if you need X, Y, and Z. The other thing with LGBTQ students, a lot of them unfortunately suffer from depression, suicidal ideation, homelessness, food insecurity. You have to have, a, if, if the campus doesn't offer it, they have to have an outlet somewhere to say, here's a resource for you. And the last item I included was to include LGBTQ topics and course materials. So a lot of students mentioned to me in my dissertation research that they never heard anything about LGBTQ people. This could be a history class, it could be a math class, it could be English class. And I know 
in an English class, you can talk about someone being lesbian or gay or bisexual because those people are out there. <laughs> it's just not mainstream to know it, but they're out there. I remember we, my LGBTQ club won for October for LGBTQ History Month. They put a board every week of, they started with lesbian and gay and transgender, bisexual. And the first week was lesbian. And just to let people know, like, here's all the lesbians throughout history. I think it was lesbian. I think it was bisexual. Um, I think it was bisexual. And um, Sarah Dickinson appeared on there. And I had an English teacher come to me and go, I never knew that. I said, yeah. Yeah. She was writing a lot of her poetry. It was about a woman <laughs> is what she's writing about. I think it was her sister-in-law she was pining after, if I remember correctly. And here she is teaching straight cisgender female teaching english teaching literature didn't know one of the people she's teaching about is bisexual so we're everywhere we're in every subject we can be in every subject you just have to be conscious to put them actually in the course material you know mentioning them once mentioning one lgbtq person makes a huge difference for our population and in many ways you're robbing these individuals of their history yeah. And their identity. I yeah. mean, we whitewashed their sexuality because maybe it had to have been hidden at that point, but we're at a point where that, that could be celebrated. Right. So, so for you, what is on the forefront? What, Giovanni, you talked about potentially doing this nationwide research. Are you looking to do any of the continuation research off of your dissertation study looking to do new research what's 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 it like for you right now post defense as just a citizen in the world <laughs> just a citizen i love it i'm back to general population <laughs> no longer a student um so my committee has talked and they would like me to do two maybe three research articles based on just my dissertation which is great because I, I definitely want to get this information out there. And if I can break it down into smaller bits, put it in three different journals, it makes the information uh, accessible to individuals because it's so important that my findings are hopefully applied to community colleges in the future. If not five of them, maybe some of them. Very important to get the institutional support on LGBTQ students for retention and for equity, to be honest. So beyond that, I want to keep researching. I want to figure out how I'm going to do that. I do work full-time at a community college. So I want to keep researching LGBTQ students. I think it's a community college students. I think it's fascinating. It's fascinating to find out their stories. It was fascinating to um, interview them and just see into a glimmer, you know, an hour, hour and a half at max, their life and what it's been like. I got a lot out of it personally, just finding out what's going on with, I'll say queer students from now on, queer students and how their lives are evolving while in a community college. Because it, they're almost, to me, they're almost forgotten because it, again, it's, it's very workforce driven. It's very move on to a four-year institution driven. It's just very fast. So I feel like they're getting left behind and I don't, I don't want their stories to be lost. So wrapping up, it's been a really joy to speak to you today. The last thing I like to finish on is now that you are a doctor, what are any pieces of advice that you would have for individuals who are currently on their doctoral journey? So I think the 
first piece of advice I would have was start thinking about your dissertation day one or day negative 150. The sooner you think about it, the easier it is. So think about, okay, I really like qualitative. That's definitely the area I'm going, or, um, you know, I really want to do quantitative. Try to figure those things out early because it helps along the way. Big help. I mean, I wouldn't have got done, I don't think, as quickly if I didn't make those decisions early. Like as I'm learning qualitative research, I'm going, what do I like? What do I not like here? Like, let's start eliminating stuff right away. I do not like quantitative. I do not like, I don't want to go that route. I know that. I knew that from the beginning. Like as soon as we start learning about it, it's like, no, I don't like that. Let's move on. Uh, what's next? <laughs> what are my other options? So decide that stuff as quickly as possible. The other thing I think that makes, a, if you're going to do just a dissertation, try to put yourself in there somewhere. So if you identify as being gay, look at topics from you know an LGBTQ perspective or a queer perspective or a transgender perspective. Try to make it a little more personal. When I wasn't making it as personal and, and about myself, I wasn't really into it when I was trying to find a topic. I mean, I was all over the place. And then once, as I said earlier in the podcast, I, you know, Paige looked at me and said, well, why don't you do LGBTQ community college students? It clicked right then for me. Like, ah, oh, I've got to make this more about myself. Like I gotta, I gotta feel something. I gotta connect with these individuals. You know, if that's first generation and that's how you identify, then try to focus on first generation because the more you relate to this topic, I think the easier it is because you'll enjoy it. You know, you don't want to go through a dissertation and not enjoy the topic. That, oh my goodness, I wouldn't made it. I wouldn't be PhD right now. I wouldn't be doctor. So make it personal about looking at yourself. And I think that's where I also fall into Appalachian because I'm born and raised in West Virginia. So I identified there as well. So I really tried to incorporate who I am as a person into my topic. So then I felt more comfortable with the whole dissertation. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and talk with me and share this research that you so passionately completed. It's really wonderful. All the research we talk about in this podcast is valuable, but really hoping to see some of the initiatives that you had talked about applied at these institutions so we can have more inclusive communities for our students. Absolutely. Always a joy to spend time with a fellow monarch. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. No problem. Thank you again to our listeners. Please remember to subscribe to hear all future episodes of the Beyond the Defense podcast. New episodes are released every Friday. Be sure to follow the Beyond the Defense podcast on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates on upcoming episodes and to get more information on sharing your research. 